chapter 19, verse 11. And if you don't have a Bible, there is one there in front of you in the pew, and you can find your place on page 928. Something we sang just a minute ago, our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor, and with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor. The sword that makes the wounded whole, referring to the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God which we are about uh, to open and read and learn from. This is what makes the wounded whole. And uh, let me make that our prayer uh, this morning. Father, we pray that as we look at your word today, that the wounded in this room would become whole. That sinners who don't know you would know you that the proud would be brought low and the humble will be raised up. That those who are poor in spirit would be made rich in Christ and see that all of us would see him as he is in all of his resurrection glory this morning. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is our victor. He is our atonement. And we love him. Help us to love him more. In Jesus' name, amen. So we started our annual emphasis on uh, global missions last Sunday, and that's pretty easy to do from the book of Acts. Uh, We looked at the kingdom of God and what that entailed for our participation in missions, and that theme continues in verse 11. We won't find the word kingdom for a while uh, longer in Acts, uh, but we will witness the king. We will witness the king ruling from heaven and overpowering Satan. So I want to start reading in chapter 19, verse 11. This is God's word to us. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. And then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. 
And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Some time ago, dragons was the topic at the dinner table. And afterwards, I showed the kids a clip of Smaug from The Hobbit. One of them had trouble sleeping that night. <laughs> Daddy, I'm scared of the dragon. And I said, yeah, dragons are scary. Now, smog can't hurt you. He's pretend. But not all dragons are pretend. The Bible says Satan is a great dragon. He has a great kingdom but guess what? And he said, Jesus is stronger? Yes. Jesus' kingdom beats the dragon's kingdom. Let's pray and ask Jesus for help. Jesus saves us from fearing false dragons and from real ones too. We don't often view the world this way, but the Bible portrays Satan as a great dragon. He has a kingdom of darkness, and his kingdom deceives people, his kingdom oppresses people, and his kingdom systematically opposes God's kingdom. In today's passage, Satan has a kingdom in Ephesus. There are demons... Evil spirits, it says in verse 12. There are deceivers like Jewish exorcists and magicians. Not the most helpful conditions. But Paul remains undeterred. He announces the kingdom of God. And God works powerfully through Paul. Satan's strongholds crumble. Jesus' name is lifted up. God's kingdom marches on. And the picture this gives us is one of much courage. We can take much courage from it when thinking about global missions. The dragon's influence may be great, but it's no match for the risen Lord Jesus. And so we need not fear the dragon. Let's look at five things that happen as God's kingdom advances in Ephesus. One... We find the messenger of the kingdom authenticated. The messenger of the kingdom authenticated. Uh, verse 11. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. If you're thinking... Wow, that's really unusual. You'd be right. Luke thinks they're unusual. They're not ordinary, but 
extraordinary. We shouldn't expect to see them every day. These were unusual miracles. And that's important to note and should give us pause when others attempt to make this the norm. It's not. At the same time, we're talking about God. He created everything from nothing. He sustains everything by the word of his power. Every subatomic particle obeys his command, always. If he chooses to perform unusual signs, the better question isn't, how's that possible? But what's he trying to say? Well, within the book of Acts, and also if we look at Paul's own writings, these miracles functioned to authenticate God's messenger. It's similar to the way God authenticated Moses with signs and wonders. The same thing happens with Jesus, who is the prophet that's better than Moses. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22... Jesus was a man attested to you by God, it says, with mighty works and signs and wonders. So the miracles had an an undeniable apologetic function. People couldn't deny that God's hand was on Jesus. And now people cannot and should not deny that God's hand was on Paul. Or better, God had raised Jesus from the dead and he was now working his miracles in and through Paul. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. He says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. Now, Christ-like endurance was also part of the picture. Christ-like endurance was part of the picture of authenticating Jesus' disciples, but signs and wonders also marked Paul as the messenger of God's kingdom. Now, God may still choose to work this way, especially when the gospel penetrates new places. But once the gospel takes root, God's primary means of authenticating the gospel message is the local church. God displays his reign through his people. That's for another day. For now, simply note that God marks Paul as his kingdom messenger here. The signs do not undermine the word he preached. They don't distract from the word he preached. uh, Nor do they become a substitute for the word he preached. Rather, they confirm the word he preached. They point to the word he preached. Which means we must heed and obey the apostles' words. If God marked Paul as a true apostle alongside Peter and others, we must heed his message. We must obey what he delivers to us on Jesus' behalf. Now, some of his words come out in, the, in, uh, in Acts. 
and others come in the 13 letters bound in your New Testament. Paul preaches and explains the, the message of the king. And the question for us is, are we listening? Are we following it? Are we taking it to heart and submitting our lives to it? But something else the signs mean is this. If the signs confirm the word of the kingdom that Paul preached, then God has also displayed through Paul what the kingdom is about. That's the second thing happening here. The nature of the kingdom is displayed. The nature of the kingdom is displayed. I'm still talking about the miracles here. The miracles did not authenticate Paul in a what you might call a parallel fashion. Okay, they weren't just random displays of power that, that kind of came alongside the message but never had really anything to do with the message. Rather, the miracles gave concrete expression to his message. It's one thing to announce that Jesus heals the broken and that Jesus rescues the oppressed and that Jesus is victorious over evil and then you pull a rabbit out of your hat or a card out behind from someone's ear. It has nothing to do with the message. But it's another thing when you announce Jesus heals the broken, Jesus rescues the oppressed, Jesus is victorious over evil, and diseases actually heal, and demons actually flee. You see the difference? These particular miracles were giving concrete expression to the message of the kingdom. They signaled the nature of Jesus' coming reign on earth. Everything broken will be healed in Jesus' kingdom. Satan's kingdom is overthrown by Jesus' kingdom. The captives find liberty in Jesus' kingdom. Now, that doesn't mean everybody gets healed now or completely. The kingdom we talked about last week was still already and not yet. Healed or not healed now, we all await the day of resurrection when Jesus' kingdom arrives in its fullness. But if God chooses to heal someone now in Jesus' name, we need to remember what those healings point to. They're foretastes of the holistic liberation to come when Jesus returns. So don't miss it here. Healing the sick, liberating the oppressed from demons, they're pointers. They're they're all pointers to Jesus' final kingdom on earth and what it will be like. The broken world will be made right again when Jesus comes back. All natural catastrophes will cease. Broken relationships will be made whole. Broken bodies he will transform into glorious bodies. Satan will be vanquished forever, crushed beneath our feet. No accuser, no tempter, no evil, no oppression, no strongholds, no deceivers, no darkness, no fear, pure freedom and peace and light and loveliness forever in God's presence. 
That's what these signs are supposed to point us to. Even if we're getting little glimpses here and there throughout the scripture, they're pointing to that coming day. So let them point you to what Jesus' final, final kingdom will be like. Let them move you to, to, to share the hope of this kingdom with others who are broken and oppressed. We, we may not perform extraordinary miracles like the Apostle Paul. But we know the same God. And we share the same King. And we possess the same message Paul preached and know the power that comes for those who believe it. Jesus has freed us from sin's tyranny. Jesus protects us from the evil one. Some of your bodies ache with pain. But you go forth with His Spirit as your present strength and hope that there's a resurrection day coming. That's the kingdom we offer to others. That's the kingdom Jesus brings and only which Jesus brings. Do you see it here in the Word? Do you see what God's power will one day do for all those who belong to His kingdom? If you see it, let me encourage you to delight in it and to long for it and to pray for that kingdom to come and then offer that same message to others. We'll come back to that in a moment. For now, let's look at a third happening here. The enemies of the kingdom humiliated. The enemies of the kingdom humiliated. So in verse 14, we find uh, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva and their itinerant Jewish exorcists. So they go around from town to town uh, attempting to cast out uh, evil spirits. Uh, Same type of men were actually present in Jesus' own earthly ministry. Uh, Exorcisms did occur outside uh, Jesus' circle of disciples, but only a few of these men were actually for Jesus' kingdom, uh, while others were not. The men here are examples of those who are not for Jesus' kingdom. They've apparently heard how powerful Jesus' name is. And so these guys decide to invoke the name of Jesus over those who had evil spirits. But I want you to notice their words. He says, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Not whom we proclaim. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims proclaims, which shows us they don't proclaim Jesus as Lord. They don't know Jesus personally. They have no authorization from him. They just use his name as some kind of magical formula. But what happens? They wind up humiliated. The demon goes all Jackie Chan on these guys. Verse 15. The evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. That should be a very sobering story for us all, especially when when we may face the satanic. Do you remember the story of Jesus and the Gerasene demoniac? 
This is in Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, if you want to, if you want to go there. But I'll give you kind of the short version. There's a man, and he has many demons. And for a long time, this man wore no clothes. He was naked. Uh, people, people couldn't control him. And when they did try to control him, he would, he would break chains and shackles. Uh, he didn't live in a house. He was, uh, he was driven out by the demon into the wilderness or the desert. And then Jesus approaches this man. And the demons recognize Jesus' authority. And Jesus cast them out, and, and, and Luke then describes the man like so. Get this. Luke is also the author of Acts. So this is in his first volume. They found the man sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Clothed and in his right mind. So he goes from naked and tormented in a lonely wilderness... To clothe and in his right mind at the feet of Jesus. The opposite happens with these Jewish exorcists. They have no authority over the evil spirits. They try manipulating Jesus' name to get results, and they end up in no different state than the garrison demoniac was, was in before Jesus healed him. These, these guys end up beat, naked, and humiliated. So what's the point? Well, one thing Luke's doing here is he's contrasting, uh, he's contrasting these guys with Paul. Right? These guys are exposed as a bunch of deceivers. Paul is the man with God's blessing and God's truth. Listen to him. Another is that Jesus is Lord and he refuses. Jesus is Lord and he refuses to be manipulated this way by imposters. As one author put it, he will not act as a lackey for anyone who calls on his name. And something else is that people who don't acknowledge Jesus' lordship, they lack power over the evil one. If Jesus is not your Lord, if you give him lip service while playing life by your own rules, evil will master you. You must be united to one who is stronger than Satan in order to overcome Satan. And that is Jesus and Jesus alone. He is the one who enters the strong man's house and binds him and plunders his goods. The kingdom's power over evil must include a commitment to the king himself. If that's not there, Satan will dominate you. You'll be left humiliated in the end. We should be sobered by that. But if you know the Lord Jesus truly and you belong to his kingdom, Satan has no power over you. Not because there's anything mighty in you, but because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth and you belong to him. To know Jesus is to be transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom 
of his beloved son. Colossians 1.13. It's to be seated with Jesus in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Ephesians 1.21 and 2.6. It's to have Jesus' protection from the evil one such that the evil one cannot touch you. 1 John 5.19. It's to be rescued from the fear of death that was once used by Satan to control you and to make you afraid but is now mocked by resurrection glory. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. It's to have the promise the God of peace will soon crush Satan beneath your feet. Romans 16.20 A bunch of demons weren't going to stop the risen Lord Jesus, nor would a group of Jewish exorcists invoking the Lord's name in vain. God's purpose advances again, even if that meant using some demons to expose and humiliate the enemies of the kingdom and then vindicate Paul, who belonged to his kingdom. Now, what are the ensuing results? That leads us to a fourth happening. The king of the kingdom is exalted and treasured. The king of the kingdom, exalted and treasured. Verse 17 shows us the king exalted. It says, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled or magnified. Uh, The the Lord's name was esteemed as, as he was someone great. He was held in honor among many throughout Asia. The people heard how these guys used the name of Jesus lightly and how they wound up humiliated. And so they concluded, let's not treat Jesus so lightly. Let's magnify his name. Let's call on him to save us. Let's, let's give ourselves to his kingdom and live for his glory. Let's make much of his name. Look at this carefully. Demons are still active today, tempting people and oppressing people and devouring people. Deceivers are still active today. Deceivers travel around the world promising all kinds of things in the name of Jesus. And it grieves us deeply. We hate their activity and their deception. And we long for the day when that deception will end. Until then, though... Make it your prayer that no matter what the church of Jesus Christ faces, Jesus' name will be honored. Pray for the true gospel to be vindicated and Jesus to be honored. Pray for the kingdom of demons and deceivers to crumble and for Jesus' name to be treasured. You can imagine going into a situation like this. When we were in China, uh, got, in to, got to talk to one of the uh, believers in the community there where we were located, and he used to be a, a Buddhist monk, and he told us that he used to go from town to town and cast out evil spirits as a Buddhist monk, and when I asked him how he did that, 
he said, well, I didn't know it then, but I know it now. I would call upon another evil spirit and send him into the person so that the other evil spirit would leave. And we have people from this body going into villages like this and, uh, and, and sharing the message of Christ. And people are coming to know the Lord. You can imagine going, can you imagine the, the fears and the uncertainties? I don't know if things are going to go well here and this could be bad and could end up like these sons of Sceva. And yet, Jesus' kingdom has left its mark there. There are a group of believers gathering and actually being delivered from Satan's domain. And his name is being honored. We can pray for this to continue happening. We also see the king treasured in verses 18 and 19. It says... Also, many of those who, who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value, they counted the value of them and, it, and, the, and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. What a true picture of repentance here. Many believe in Jesus They trust Jesus to save them and they come confessing and divulging their practices. What was once in darkness, they now bring into the light. What was once hidden, they now confess openly. What what they once clung to so tightly as their hope, they released in order to gain Christ. Even more, they burn their magic books, books whose value is worth 50,000 pieces of silver. In that day, that's equivalent to one year's salary for 137 workers. Someone might say, why'd they do that? Right? Take them down to half price books. Cash in. Earlier in Acts, believers sold their possessions and gave the proceeds to those in need. Why didn't they just do that with their magic books too? A year's salary for 137 workers? I could do something with that. Why burn them? Because they worship Jesus now, not money. The content in their magic books opposed the kingdom of God. The books would deceive other people and turn them from the truth. It didn't matter how much it might cost them. Having Jesus and helping others to know Jesus was worth supremely more. The books were easy to burn. What an awesome portrait of repentance here. Repentance grows from a heart that values Jesus more than anything else in life. Repentance isn't just about stopping this or that sin, though that's certainly necessary. It's about so treasuring the king that it's easy to stop the sin. He's worth everything. It's about treasuring the king such that forsaking that old way of life is easy. 
It's about so treasuring the king that you count everything as rubbish in comparison to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus your Lord. One of our biggest problems in the fight against sin is a treasure problem. It's a treasure problem. We don't treasure Jesus enough. These folks see the king exalted and they treasure him so much that they shuck the old way of life. To have him and to follow him. Finally, Luke gives us a little summary at the end. And here we see the word of the kingdom prevailing. The word of the kingdom prevailing. Uh, Verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That could fly as a banner over the entire book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Acts chapter 4, verse 4. Many of those who had heard the word believed, and and the number of men came to about 5,000. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. The word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Those who were scattered by persecution went about preaching the word. This one's my favorite. Acts 12, 24. King Herod was eaten by worms and breathed his last, but the word of God increased and multiplied. I love that contrast. All earthly kings are going to lie in the grave and their words will perish. There is one king who sits on heaven's throne. He's risen from the dead, never to die again, and his words will never perish. They will continue to advance. He's unstoppable. Acts chapter 13, verse 49. The word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Acts chapter 19, verse 10. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And here, the word of the Lord continued to increase. How does the kingdom of God advance in the face of demons and deceivers? By the word of the Lord. How does the Lord expose the darkness and rescue his people from Satan's kingdom to bring them into his kingdom? By the word of the Lord. The word, the word of the king, the word sitting in your laps, though I hope it's written on your hearts. And coming from our mouths. Paul is in Ephesus here. But later on, if you recall, he wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. And you may recall hearing something about the armor of God in Ephesians 6. Now, nearly all the pieces of armor allude to places in the Old Testament where either Yahweh or His Messiah comes to fight for the salvation of His people. 
And so when Paul speaks of putting on the armor of God, he's, he's basically telling us to put on Christ, to put on Christ's character, to put on Christ in the face of evil, to put on Christ to stand against the schemes of the devil. But when we put on Christ, when we put on God's armor, there are two pieces of armor that reveal the offensive nature of our strike. In other words, as a church, we're not just sitting back like, oh no, don't hurt us. No, the picture is actually the church is on the offensive strike as we go and go. And here's the two pieces of armor that that indicate this. Uh... You get some fancy footwear. He says, shod your feet with the gospel of peace. These are like way better than Nike's. This is God's swoosh here. You've got the gospel of peace. And you also get a sword, it says. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is... The Word of God. So what is the image here? The image is that of the church running and leaping across enemy lines, speaking the Word and bringing the message of peace in Jesus Christ. Just like Paul, you possess the gospel that brings people peace with God. To put it on your feet means that there's a readiness about your life to share that good news with other people. And you know what you look like when you do this? You know who you look like when you do this? You look like Christ. You look, like a, you look a whole lot like the one who came and preached peace to us when we were sitting separated from God and in our darkness, blinded by Satan. Ephesians 2 says this, at one time we were cut off from all of God's promises. We were apart from the covenant, we were without God and we were without hope in the world. We had no fellowship with God But then he sends Jesus, our victorious warrior. And Jesus does battle with sin on the cross. And he takes care of our sin problem on the cross. And he defeats Satan. He ousts Satan from his throne and place of authority. And he does this to bring us peace with God and peace with one another. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17. He came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. He's talking about Jesus. Christ defied Satan and robbed his domain. He continues that work now through the church as you and I share the good news about his kingdom. The way the strongholds of the evil one come down, the way that deceivers will be exposed, the way the king's name will be lifted up and magnified, the way people will learn how to treasure him is through the word of God prevailing through my life and your life. So let's spread the news. 
We have nothing to fear. Demons and deceivers may rise, but they're no match for the risen Lord Jesus. His kingdom's going to advance. Let's spread the news. Let me close by summarizing today's message like this. The kingdom of God advances when the word of God accompanied by the power of God, exalts the Son of God who turns rebels into the people of God. That's what we see happening in this passage. The kingdom of God advances when the Word of God, accompanied by the power of God, exalts the Son of God who turns rebels into the people of God. Now, if that's true, what's our strategy? Meet people, teach them the word, pray for God's power. Meet people, teach them the word, and pray for God's power. That's the strategy, church. We've heard the word this morning. And I hope Jesus was exalted in the preaching of it. Let's pray for God's power now.